feast, which is Passover, um, unleavened bread, first fruits, and uh, Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, that's the spring feasts. And then the second section of feasts is the autumn feast, and that is trumpets, day of atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And what we've been looking at is why God gave these feasts in the first place, uh, what Christ would do to fulfill these feasts, and what do these feasts mean to us as believers in the modern-day church? Because we're not under the law. We don't, as a church, celebrate those feasts as such. So what do they mean to us? And we've seen how Christ fulfilled the spring feast at his first coming. His death, burial, and resurrection fulfilled Passover, um, unleavened bread, and first fruits. And then the giving of the Holy Spirit fulfilled um, Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. And then um, we're in a gap period between the Spring Feast and the Autumn Feast, which is what we're living in right now. But when the Lord Jesus Christ returns a second time, he will fulfill the Autumn Feasts. Uh, remember that the Feast of Trumpets is not the rapture. The rapture is for the church. The Feast of Trumpets was a gathering. It was to regather Israel. It was to recommit their covenant relationship with God. And it was to restart the sacrifices. That was what Trumpets was all about. And at Christ's second coming, Israel will be regathered. The Day of Atonement was a solemn feast. It wasn't a joyous feast. It wasn't a celebration. It was a, a day of morning and finally israel will recognize that christ is the messiah they will look on him whom they've pierced they will finally say blessed is he that comes in the name of the lord and they then as a result will uh, as a nation um, recognize who their messiah is and will be prepared then to enter into uh, the millennial kingdom when christ comes to rule and reign for that thousand years and then we come to uh, the final um, of uh, the final feast. Uh, and in verse 33, the Lord says of Leviticus chapter 23, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be a feast of tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. Seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. On the eighth day shall be a holy convocation unto you. And you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. And you shall do no servile work therein. And we'll pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day, for this time together and this privilege that we have to come around your word. Father, I just pray that you'd help us to apply this word to our hearts and to our lives tonight, Lord. I pray that you would help us to recognize uh, that we serve a God of order and that you have worked all things out for your glory. And Father, as we look at this world and we see uh, the wars going on and we see the hatred uh, that man has to each other and we see the wickedness all around us, that we would recognize the fact that, that you have a plan, uh, even in the midst of all of this chaos that we see around us, that you are still working things out for your honor and for your glory uh, so that souls might be saved. So, Father, we pray that you would just comfort us at this time, that you'd help us to keep our eyes fixed firmly on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we wouldn't be disheartened or discouraged or disappointed with what the world has become, but we would be more and more challenged to tell people about Christ as that time of his return draws ever closer. So, Father, we just pray and ask these things in his most precious and wonderful name. Amen. 
So as with each of these feasts, we want to look at what God has done, what Christ would do, and what we should be doing. So what has God done? On the 15th day of the seventh month, there shall be a feast of tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. If you remember last week, we looked at the word Sabbath a lot, because that word was mentioned a lot. And it didn't just mean rest, it meant to cease, it meant complete. So the Sabbath at the end of the week meant that the, the, not only did work cease, but the week itself came to an end. That was the Sabbath. The yearly uh, Sabbath, or the, um, the year of Jubilee, when the land was meant to come to an end, to rest, that was a Sabbath rest for the land. Um, so we looked at that word um, last, uh, last week. And tabernacles um, is a completion. It kind of brings to an end the, the, the sacred cycle as well as the agricultural working year. Tabernacles fell on the time of year when the hearts of the people were naturally thankful. And they were um, joyous. All the crops had been stored. And now in the final harvest of the year, all the fruits are gathered in. Winter's approaching. And they are waiting for the, the latter rain to start to refresh the land. So they can um, kind of start the, uh, the sowing and the, the, the reaping and the harvest process all over again. In terms of God's calendar... The beginning of the harvest pointed back to the birth of Israel and their exodus from Egypt, and it looked forward to the Passover sacrifice in the future. Um, Pentecost spoke of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the harvest of the nations, and now the Feast of Tabernacles reminds Israel that one day they will finally dwell uh, safely. Not just was it a reminder of them dwelling in booths in the wilderness, but it pointed to a final harvest when Israel's purpose will be complete. Um, Israel is meant to be a light to the Gentiles. That was Israel's purpose. Israel was meant to have a covenant relationship with God. Um, and that uh, hasn't happened as uh, God uh, wants it to. So what were the characteristics of tabernacles? First of all, we see that they were to dwell in booths. In verse 42, it says, He shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths. And this is a reminder that God protected Israel for 40 years as they wandered through the wilderness. The temporary booths symbolize the need to depend upon God for his provision, for food, for water, for safety, for protection, for shelter, for everything. But also, during this time of the Feast of Tabernacles, there is an unusual amount of sacrifices. Every day they were to sacrifice two rams, 14 lambs, they were to make grain offerings, um, a, a male goat was meant to be a sin offering, bulls were sacrificed each day, uh, and it's interesting when you look at the sacrifices they made, um, they were all uh, had the number seven, it was all divisible by the number seven. Over the week, they sacrificed 70 bullocks, 14 rams, 98 lambs, um, 182 sacrifices. Um, seven is God's perfect number. 
uh, and seven appears in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, it appears uh, at Pentecost because it's seven sevens before the day of Pentecost. Uh, and in the Feast of Tabernacles, its duration is seven. It takes place in the seventh month. Number seven is God's number. Number seven is a perfect number. Number seven means that everything is come to completion. Tabernacles kind of completes everything. It is the culmination of God's purpose for Israel. But if you remember, last week was a solemn assembly. This week is different. Um, Day of Atonement was solemn, but Tabernacles was a celebratory and a joyous uh, festival. In contrast to the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement, they were, they were times of introspection. They were times of repentance. There was a solemn assembly. This is a rejoicing. In verse 40, it says, And ye shall take on you the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and the boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook, and ye shall rejoice before the Lord seven days. So it was to be a time of rejoicing. At the end of the day, at the seven days of rejoicing, there was one final day, the eighth day, um, which was a Shabbat, Shabbat on that Sabbath of Sabbath, a solemn rest day as the feast uh, came towards an end. But over time, there were two other elements added to this feast, which are really important. Um, it wasn't something that God added, but it was something that man added that still God used to point to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because two things happened during the Feast of Tabernacles uh, in Jerusalem. First of all, there was a water drawing ceremony. Um, the priests would head down to the pool of Siloam, and they would take some water from the pool and bring it back up to uh, the temple and passing through the water gate, and the water then was poured out at the temple altar. And there was an illumination of the temple. These menorahs, these four menorah stands, were 150 foot in the air. And they were filled with 20 gallons of oil in each of the four bowls on these menorahs, and the wicks were the old garments of the priests. So when they were lit... It literally lit up the whole of Jerusalem. It goes without saying that it was at those, that occasion during the water drawing ceremony of the Feast of Tabernacles and the fact that this, the, the, the Jerusalem and the temple was lit by these giant menorahs that the Lord Jesus Christ said two things. I am the living water and I am the light of the world. All of these feasts point to the Lord Jesus Christ. So what then, if that's what God has done, what would Christ do? Um, we picture Christ tabernacling with us. John chapter 1 and verse 14 says, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word dwelt there is the word skino, which means to tabernacle, to tent, or to encamp, to occupy, or to reside. As God did in the Old Testament, in the Holy of Holies, he 
dwelt among his people in the tabernacle, the Lord Jesus Christ dwelt or tabernacled among his people. Um, Jesus came to this earth and took on a body of flesh. And again, I, I might upset a few people here, but it's possible that the Lord Jesus Christ was born during the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, this is one of those pilgrimage feasts. That's why Bethlehem was so busy, because it was close to Jerusalem. Everybody was there for the feasts. There wasn't much going on in December, um, for everything to be kind of full up and busy, uh, for there to be nowhere for Mary and Joseph to, to stay. So it's possible that the Lord Jesus Christ was born in October time, the seventh month, rather than December. Now, you can still celebrate Christmas on December the 25th. That's not fine. And you don't have to fall out with me about it. Um, I still open presents on the 25th. I've still got a stocking. I've still put a tree up. I'm not against Christmas. I love Christmas. But it does confuse the Jehovah's Witnesses when they come and knock on my door and say, you believe Jesus was born in December? And I go, no, I don't. I believe he was born in October. That's not covered in their script, so they don't really know what to say next. But it's possible that the Lord Jesus Christ was born during the Feast of Tabernacles. He would have been conceived during the Feast of Lights, December, but he was born at Tabernacles, and that's why he said he tabernacles among us. Uh, there's also extra evidence, you know, that, that it would have been too cold for the shepherds to be out in the field at night, and um, it would have been a lot warmer uh, in October. There's also evidence pointing to the fact that Zechariah was serving in the temple, uh, uh, the, the, and, and, and the birth of John, uh, his son, uh, also points to the birth of Christ being around about this time during the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. It's interesting how Jesus used the customs of tabernacles to describe himself. Because in John chapter 7 and verse 2, he says this, John chapter 7, verse 2, uh, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. And in verse 10, it says uh, that uh, his brethren were gone up and they went also up to the feast. Uh, then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And then in verse 37, he's there in Jerusalem during the feast of tabernacles. And in the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus cried and said, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. What did they do at this time of the Feast of Tabernacles? They went down to the pool of Siloam and brought up the water. And Jesus is saying, if you want water, then you come to me. And you will have a water that is absolutely perfect. And he said then... Um, uh, this he spake of the Spirit, which uh, they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, of a truth, this is a prophet. And they said, this is the Christ. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the Scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was disputing uh, among the people about who Christ was, but Christ openly said during this time at the Feast of Tabernacles that if any man thirst, come to me. Christ is the only one that can quench that thirst. Christ is the only one that can fulfill that emptiness that we have 
in our lives. In light of this messianic understanding of the water ceremony of the Feast of Tabernacles, it's incredible that he chose that very moment to say uh, and to present himself as the one out of whom these living waters would flow. And then remember we talked about that menorah light that lit up the whole of Jerusalem. He says in John 8, chapter 12, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Let me tell you something. This light that was in Jerusalem, this 20 gallons of oil. Um, the wick is not just some little candlestick. It is the wick of the priest's garments. These lights would have been huge. It would have lit up the Jerusalem. Like, and don't forget now, there's no street lights. There's no orange glow of the, you know, the council street lights everywhere. Uh, it would have been quite dark through Jerusalem at this time. But at the Feast of Tabernacles, it would have been lit up like nobody's business because of these gigantic menorahs. And then Christ said, you think that's a bright light? I am the light of the world. The world is steeped in darkness at this time. Tabernacles played a vital role in presenting Christ as God dwelling with us. It, it presented Christ as bringing the water of life to sustain us. It presented Christ as himself bringing light into the darkest world. It's interesting that when he came to earth, Christ himself lived in a temporary shelter. Amos 9, 10, 11 to 12 says, In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all, uh, of all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. I will raise up the tabernacle of David. The Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Amos is describing a time when God would restore Israel, when the Messiah, who is a descendant of David, would reign. We also see another picture of the tabernacle in the life of Christ. If you, if you can, turn to me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. And here we have the account of what's known as the transfiguration. Mark chapter 9, it says, After six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as the snow, so as no full on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses as they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were so afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly when they had looked around about, they saw no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves. And when they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man was risen from the dead. Now in verse 1 of chapter 9, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with 
power. So Jesus promised that some of the disciples present would not die before they saw the kingdom of God. Uh, that they would see the kingdom of God with power. Uh, and they'd ask them again that they want to make the kingdom now and that the church is the kingdom. And uh, they would suggest that Jesus' words were actually realized in the book of Acts because that's when the kingdom came. But they're missing what follows this promise. The Lord takes Peter and John up to a mountain and they witness the transfiguration. But look at Peter's response in verse 5. Peter says, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. How many, let me ask you this question. How many of you have heard a sermon where people say, Peter was just so rash? Peter was, oh, he was just gung-ho, wasn't he? He just spoke before he thought, and he's like, oh, no, I can't believe Peter said that. Peter basically says what we all think, but he just didn't have the filter to kind of not just get on with it and say it. And sometimes we criticize Peter for this. And we're like, oh, Peter, that's so silly to, to want to build a tabernacle to try and capture this moment. But Peter was actually right. Peter was correct in wanting to build a tabernacle because he recognized the messianic significance. The scene of the transfiguration represented for Peter was a realization of the messianic times foreshadowed by the Feast of Tabernacles. The only mistake Peter made was thinking that the kingdom was coming right then. He wasn't mistaken. If you, if you look, he wasn't rebuked for suggesting that. Normally, Peter was rebuked. Then he said, Peter, really? Um, think before you speak. But th th there's no rebuke here. The only problem that Peter made was the timing. Because this is exactly what happens when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to set up his kingdom. He will dwell with his people. Tabernacles brings us to the one last great prophetic event involving Israel. God the Son comes to earth and establishes his kingdom. Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. Uh, and we see uh, again in verse uh, 15, Revelation chapter 7, and verse 15. So he's talking about the, the, the Lord coming to earth. He says in verse 15, Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. That word again is the, is the word skino, which means to tent or to encamp. He will dwell among them. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but in Isaiah uh, chapter 4 uh, and in verse 2, it says, In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that escaped of Israel. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem. 
When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, and the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night, for upon all the glory shall be a defense, and there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat and for a place of refuge and for a covert from the storm and from the rain. Isaiah refers to a time when the sins of Israel be washed away, their names will be recorded in the book of life, and this is a reference to what the future fulfillment of Rosh Hashanah, the day of atonement. Then God's glory will appear over Mount Zion, and his glory will create a canopy described as a sukkot, a booth. Zechariah 14 describes, uh, and again, I know there's a lot of passages. I know this is more like a Bible study, and I, I, I am going to get to an application for all of us in a minute. It's not just like a load of facts, but uh, we'll get to now. Zechariah chapter 14, um, and just two verses, 8 and 9. It shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them towards the former sea, and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be... And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And in that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. Remember Christ's claims about being the living water he made while at the Feast of Booths. Here we see that living water flowing from Jerusalem. Occurring as a result of the Messiah being uh, from the line of David, taking his throne and ruling the earth. Um, we know after the, uh, the, the battle of Armageddon that we see in Revelation, I saw thrones and they that sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. I saw souls that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So this battle of Armageddon ushers in uh, the thousand year uh, period where Christ begins his reign, uh, and Zechariah 14, 16 tells us this. It shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. Everybody, every nation, will go to Jerusalem during the millennium, Jew and Gentile, and will go to celebrate the Feast of Booths, a joyous occasion um, to celebrate the fact that God himself is finally dwelling among his people as he should. Um, there's also a reference that those who refuse to go up to, to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, the Lord will actually withhold rain from the land. So, what did, what did God do? He, he arrayed, he, he instituted the Feast of Tabernacles to remind the children of Israel of their protection through the wilderness. What did Christ do? Christ fulfilled the Feast of, uh, of Tabernacles when he first came as, uh, as he tabernacled among us, but he will completely fulfill it at his second coming when he dwells among his people. So what does that mean to us? What has that got to do with us? We don't 
once a year in October, um, kind of erect booths and sleep in the garden like they do in, in, all through Israel. So what, what has it got to do with us? What should we be doing? As we com- c- like complete and conclude our study on these seven feasts, they all speak to us to remind us of two things. First of all, the Jewish feasts remind us that we should consider how we prepare to worship God. And that's the thing I've said all along. God is a God of order. And although each of the seven feasts are diverse in in the ways in which they're observed, in the um, um, divine aspects of Christ, they're, they're different. They do have one thing in common. They were celebrated as a community, not as individuals. I think oftentimes we got to a point where as Christians, we feel like we don't really need the church anymore. The church is becoming obsolete. We can do church online now because we've got the technology to do it. And technology is great. I'm not having to go to any of you online. Thank you for joining us. But if that's all we did, we wouldn't grow. We need one another in the church. Because when we are in our place, you are encouraging the person sat next to you. You are encouraging the, 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 the preacher standing at the front. You are encouraging the person sat behind you. What you've been through this week may just be the very thing God wants to use to help the person sat three or four rows behind. We can't do this on our own. Being a Christian is really hard in the day and age in which we live. Everybody I speak to who knows the Lord says the same thing. They, you know, they, they go to work for the whole week and it kind of makes them feel spiritually dirty and you kind of come to church and you get washed and you get encouraged and you kind of get ready for the, the week ahead. And that enables us then to face what the week holds in store for us. But these, all of these feasts remind us that we're not to do this in isolation. God has saved us as a body for a purpose, for a reason. It would be very, and I can promise you from experience, I know exactly what it's like to preach when there's not a single person in the church. Because we did it for six months through COVID. And it's tough. That's why I had to put your pictures on the pews. That's why I'm thankful that you good old-fashioned Baptists who sit in the exact same place every single week because I knew where your picture went. The ones up in the, up in the balcony, mind, I did have to put on the sides because I, I just couldn't, I couldn't focus on the pictures up there, so you were down here. But it, it, it was tough. It's tough to preach to an empty church. So you encourage me. You encourage one another. These feasts tell us that we're not meant to do this on our own. I understand the Lord is with us. I understand he gives us the strength. I understand that we've got the Holy Spirit to guide us. I understand that. But we cannot walk this walk in isolation from one another. These feasts tell us that we are to do this as a community. But it also reminds us that, you know, for a lot of these feasts, there was some preparation. You know, they didn't just turn up and go like, oh, right, okay, it's just time for a feast. 
when we look at Passover, things had to be prepared. You know, the, the lamb had to be prepared and, and monitored for, for, for a few days before it was sacrificed. And it, it had to be perfect. And there were certain things that had to be done in certain order. It took preparation. It reminds us that when we come to worship the Lord, we don't just kind of rush into his presence. It takes some preparation in order for our hearts to be prepared to meet with our God. You know, we're not meant to just kind of rush into his presence and get church over with so we can go home. We are meant to spend time preparing our hearts. We are meant to spend time preparing to meet with our God. And it ought to be joyous. I understand that sometimes the message might be uncomfortable and sometimes the message might cause us to be a little bit convicted. I understand that, but I, even when I'm convicted, I still love coming to church. The feasts tell us that we are to prepare properly for worship, that we are to do this as a community of believers. I understand that there are times when we're on our own. I get that, but it's so much better when we gather together to worship the Lord together. The Feast of Booths calls us to focus our lives on the things which have eternal value. The temporary shelters of the Feast of Booths are reminders that our lives here on earth are just that. They are temporary. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heaven. Do you know, we prepare for so much in life. Um, we may prepare for a project in work. We may prepare for a project in the house. We may prepare uh, for a wedding. We may prepare uh, for a holiday. We, we prepare for Christmas. There are, I, and I know for a fact there are people here who have already bought stuff in the January sales for Christmas. And I know you're among us because I married us. <laughs> True story. My point is this, if we put all of that effort in preparing for something that lasts for just one day, shouldn't we put even more effort into something, to prepare for something that lasts for eternity? You know, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people, and you'll be surprised, quite a few people do this. I have spoken to a lot of people who have sat down with me and have gone through what they want for their funeral. And I've said the same thing to each one that I've sat with. It's great that you are preparing this for that one day. But you need to prepare for something that lasts for a lot longer. It's more important that you are prepared for eternity. The Feast of Booths reminds us that this tabernacle does not last forever. It's just temporary. These earthly bodies are temporary. But right now, Christ has gone to prepare a place for us. And he said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and return for you. So the way he is, we can be also. Paul describes the temporary nature of our human bodies ought to guide the way we live, for which cause we faint not. But though our outward 
man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not on the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Our bodies are temporary and are wasting away. Let me ask you this question. It doesn't matter what color your hair is or how much you have or don't have. How much more does your body ache today than it did 10 years ago? Or 20 years ago? Or 30 years ago? I, I, I'm telling you, I don't know what it is, but I got past 50 and all of a sudden parts of my body started aching I didn't even know existed. The mind keeps saying to me, yeah, you can do that. And then the body's like, what on earth are you doing? Why would you do that? These bodies break really easily. And the older you get, the easier stuff starts to go wrong. Why? Because they're not being made by Japanese or German manufacturers. They don't last forever. They break and they run out. And the Feast of Booths reminds us that our bodies are temporal. But eternity is forever. Based on what you do with the Lord Jesus Christ depends on where you spend eternity. Can I just ask one simple question tonight? Do you know him as your Savior? Has there been a time in your life where you recognized that you had sinned? That you'd broken God's commandments? Even one sin is enough to keep you out of heaven. Has there been a moment in your life where you thought, I've done that, I'm a sinner? Has there been a moment in your life where you recognized the fact that Christ died on the cross for you? That he died just for you? And that your sins could be placed upon him? That he would pay that debt for you. That he became sin for you. So you could become righteous. And therefore have access to God's presence. These bodies are temporary. And they will one day end up in the ground. But the most important part of you. Your soul lasts forever. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ said. He said, don't worry about what people can do to the body. You worry about what happens to the soul. Because the soul lasts forever. That can't be destroyed. So that has to live somewhere forever. If you accept Christ as your Savior, that forever will be in heaven. If you reject Christ as your Savior, then that forever is in a place called hell. But God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if we believe that Christ died on the cross for us and we confess our sins and we ask him to save us, the Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You might have been here over the last 12 weeks and thought, what, what do these feasts mean? If you've learned nothing else, just learn this. Our God is a God of order. He does things properly. And the feasts simply remind us that we are to do things his way. These bodies won't last forever, but eternity does last forever. Would you trust Christ tonight if you've never done that?
You know, we see a lot of nonsense going on in the world today. We see a lot of wickedness in the world today. We see a lot of hatred in the world today. We see a lot of war going on in the world today. Every single thing can be traced to just one thing. And that's sin. Man is inherently wicked. There's none righteous, no, not one. This world is not perfect anymore. But one day it will be when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. But until then, don't get disheartened when you see the world falling apart. Do your part. Be the light that the Lord Jesus Christ talked about in a dark place. Show love that Christ has for a lost and wicked world so that they might experience what we've experienced through trusting Christ as our Savior. And simply be the Christian that God wants you to be in such a wicked world so that others can see the Lord Jesus Christ in you. Because you might be the only Bible a lost person will ever read. And we just want them to see Christ all over us. Father, we thank you again for this time together tonight and for this privilege of coming around your word. And Father, we just prayed you would help us to recognize the fact that we serve an incredible God. And Father, I'm thankful for that gift of eternal life which comes through trusting Christ as our Savior. And Lord, we just pray that you would help us as believers to be joyous in our walk with you, to recognize that we are a community of believers and that we can't do this on our own or in isolation. That we are able to encourage one another. We've been told to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the Lord of Christ. Father, would you help us to prepare our hearts before we ever come into your presence, that we don't rush into your presence without coming before you with the reverence that you deserve, that our hearts may be prepared and as a result, our joy may be full. So Father, we just pray that you'd lend a touch to each and every one here tonight. You know the need, you know the burden, you know the needs of salvation, you know the needs of those who are struggling in any aspect of their life. Father, I pray that you would just help us tonight. We pray and ask these things in Christ's most wonderful and perfect name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing our last hymn together, uh, Amazing Grace. And at the last verse, I'm going to ask Andrew Davis if he would come up the front then and close us in a word of prayer.
Father, we thank thee again for that one who is the eternal word. He was made flesh and he tabernacles amongst us. And we praise you that this coming a day, our God, during that millennium, when everyone will go up to worship him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, we praise thee for him, our God, and the fact that we can call him our saviour, the one who loved us and gave himself for us, the one who was made sin for us. And we praise thee, our God, for everyone here tonight who knows him as their saviour. We would pray for any here tonight, our God, who have never met him, who have never come face to face with him, who have never confronted their need of a saviour, who never confronted the fact that they are sinners in the sight of a holy God. It includes every one of us, our God, but some of us have believed, and we pray for those who haven't, for those who don't know him, that they may come to know him tonight, realising that Christ Jesus, the Lord, is the only answer to this world's problems. We look around us, our God, throughout the world, and we see difficulties and hardships and wars and famines. But we know that is one who is able to supply all our needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. We pray that someone will turn to him tonight for salvation, our God, and we would ask us now, ask thee now, to part us with thy blessing. For we ask it in his name. Amen. <laughs>